0: Welcome to the conversation. I'm Benjamin Dixon, host for this afternoon, and I'm excited to be joined by Koa Beck, who is the former editor in chief of Jezebel and co host of the hashtag MeTooMemos on WNYC's The Takeaway. Previously, she was the executive for Vogue.com and the senior features editor at MarieClaire.com. Koa, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me, Benjamin
0: the pleasure is ours, I wanted to speak to you in general about your work, your scholarship, and all the things that you do, but also about your book, White Feminism, from the suffragettes to influencers and who they leave behind. Could you tell us about that book and how it intersects with all of your work?
1: Sure, so uh, I have worked in mainstream women's media for about 10 years. Um, I stepped away from my most recent role to do this book, but I've essentially covered gender, race, um, queer rights, all kinds of identity politics for really the bulk of my career. And um, by virtue of many of the newsrooms that I've worked in and then, you know, stories I've either covered or pitched or assigned out to other people, um, I have really had a front row seat to Uh, mainstream feminism and the ways in which certain interpretations of feminism um, have become much more palatable, but also just acceptable and in some cases trendy. Um, Mm. So in a lot of ways, this book is the culmination of a lot of cultural observations I've had, um, specifically in tracing uh, mainstream feminism through, you know, movements for gender progress that have not been anchored in a white feminist ideology, such as like black feminism, um, certain indigenous women's movements in this country, Chicanas, disabled uh, justice in this country, um, queer rights, that sort of thing.
0: Mm. Could you draw that line for us as as briefly as you can? Obviously, you have a full book and everyone should check it out. But uh, for the sake of this conversation, could you draw that line from white feminism to, um, like you said, black feminism and and the different um, Uh, iterations of it.
1: Sure. So I define white feminism very early in my book and in the introduction to give readers a working definition of what I'm tracing um, and also, you know, what I'm analyzing. I define white feminism as a very specific approach to achieving gender equality that pulls considerably from colonialism, imperialism, some key pieces of white supremacy as well, and specifically labor exploitation. So the individual accumulation of wealth and autonomy that is then gauged as quote-unquote feminist progress. Meanwhile, many other movements and feminisms in this country um, do not approach gender equality through those lenses. Um, I analyze a number of movements that are very socialist in their execution, um, but even if they don't necessarily use that word or you know mm-hmm. strictly identify with a socialist approach, they are very collective in their understanding of what feminism is, but also what it should achieve. So exporting a very specific skill set to an individual woman in their community is not necessarily gauged as feminism. What is feminism is everybody having access to clean mm. water, everybody having access to food security, everybody having access to affordable housing.
0: Mm. So if, if, if someone is trying to understand this, um, it sounds like the way that you have defined white feminism is best understood as... Perhaps challenging some male structures, but not the underlying structures. Like I heard you, you mentioned colonialism, capitalism. Um, is, is, am I hearing you correctly?
1: Yeah, I, I think that's accurate. I interpret white feminism um, broadly as not particularly being invested in any structural change. The real key difference I see between white feminism approaches to uh, misogyny and gender equality is again exporting this very specific skill set to women that is informed by patriarchy, colonialism, imperialism, and then branding and positioning it as feminist, you know, for Mm. you to exploit low income workers, to take advantage of domestic workers, to basically run, you know, a very powerful company in the way that patriarchy broadly encourages you to do it. Um, Whereas, you know, many other movements, and again, you can really pick a number of them, um, are much more in invested in structural change rather than encouraging women and non-binary people to excel in the current structure.
0: Yeah, this is fascinating because one of the things, um, just in in my personal journey towards uh, liberation and progressivism and understanding my role in, in, the, in these structures, one of the things I had to come to terms with was um, how my role in patriarchy actually undermines my fight for liberation in every other category. And I'm curious, in your experience, have you ever found anyone who subscribes to white feminism actually understand that it is, in fact, from how you define it and the way I hear you describing it um, undermines their ultimate goals? Or do they not even have the common goals of like actual liberation and they're just satisfied with uh, proximity to white male power?
1: Um, I would argue more so the former. I mean, a big... Um Uh, sort of parameter that I found in researching this book, but also... So putting it together and assembling it across again you know so many movements is that um, white feminist practices and white feminists I argue are actually advocating for very different things than say mm-hmm. like the disability justice movement or even like fat politics or queer movements um, they're basically encouraging more women to get involved in the current systems rather than to change the systems to um, really support and uh, in some ways, like substantiate more people. Mm.
0: Wow, that is uh, uh, revealing. I want to further it. I one of my colleagues, Anoa Changa, said something years ago that stuck with me, and she said corporate feminism does not trickle down. Um, would you draw an analog between like corporate feminism and uh, white feminism?
1: Sure. So I um, I trace in my book, you know, a lot of what has been deemed like corporate feminism. Some people say girl boss feminism. Um, Barbara Smith says bourgeois feminism. Mm. Um, I analyze a lot of these in tandem and together as one movement, because I think what um, very importantly threads them together is this aspiration to whiteness. And so they are encouraging uh, women and non-binary people to not necessarily work towards equal rights, but to aspire towards white privilege. And I've, I've seen that you know on a one-to-one level, but even just in historical analysis in terms of you know encouraging say like same-sex couples you know to really engage in this um, kind of like heterosexist understanding of like policy or the way that rights should be shaped, um, you know, basically encouraging like working class people to ascend to middle class rather mm-hmm. than like challenging a lot right. of the structures that determine class in this country.
0: So, so how do we, how do we, how do we unpack that in terms of, of, of action? And, and you know, because if, if there's a segment of feminism that is, uh, you know, encouraging other groups to aspire to their particular brand, um, while the rest of us are understanding that it's the structural problems underneath that need to be changed. Right. You know, if if uh, uh, what Dr. King said, a, a threat to justice anywhere is a, is a threat to justice everywhere. How do we how do we convert that? Or how did you address it in your book? Like, what is the what are the action steps people should look at and be wary of or be uh, knowledgeable of?
1: I, in the last third of my book, I lay out what I deem to be a course correction for white feminism that I think can work, you know, on both a one-to-one level in terms of, you know, checking your own, you know, white feminism, um, but also I think, you know, for institutions, for structures, for bodies. Um, Generally, what I'll say is that I think it's important to, um, in controlling for a white feminist approach to start your gender consciousness or your feminist politics at basic need um, a big telltale sign of white feminism is that it often starts again as a practice and in terms of policies it starts at you know lofty educational opportunities and then small business and enterprise and that's where it starts because mm-hmm. the assumption in white feminism is that everybody has a basic standard of living whereas you know for most marginalized genders in our country and even globally you know they're not necessarily looking to be like heads of lofty companies they're looking to be food secure they're looking for access to clean water so my general advice is to start there at basic need and also to approach feminism with a collective understanding in terms of what women and non-binary people around you need. Um, I always say, you know, the clean on-ramp to the white feminism freeway is understanding feminism solely through your own individual needs, rather Mm -hmm. than what the women in your community need, the women in your workplace, the women, you know, in your family. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think those two things can really help.
0: And with the time that we have left, could you discuss, I, I listened to a panel that you had, um, I believe it was with Barbara Smith and along with another, a couple of other fascinating and brilliant minds. And, and someone said, or perhaps you said that when you find power that is yours, that there's sometimes you have to seed that power, right? How do you yeah. talk about that in context of, of feminism and white feminism?
1: Well, um, a lot of times what I have seen in this particular round of white feminism, um, and I learned through the course of this book that this is not new, but this idea that, you know, the structures, as we've said, stay the same, but then a lot of these institutional bodies will use queer people, people of color, disabled people, Muslim people, um, mm-hmm as like ornaments, basically, to the structures being the change. And Sarah Ahmed, who is another brilliant feminist thinker, um, she calls this institutional polishing, uh, Mm -hmm. which I cite in my book. So I think that white feminism, you know, inherits and uses that strategy in that, again, the core issues are still lofty education, small business and enterprise, and yet you're um, recruiting, you know, very specific women of color to stand Mm. there and like diversify your panel of, you know, otherwise like entirely white straight ladies.
0: Um, Call I wish we had much more time to discuss this author of white feminism from suffragettes to influencers and who they leave behind. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Pleasure is ours. Welcome back to the conversation. I'm Benjamin Dixon, joined this time by David Sirota, journalist and former speechwriter for Bernie Sanders. David, thanks so much for joining us.
2: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: Listen, I've been following your work for some time, and right now it seems the pressing issue that I see that you've been writing about and tweeting about and being very vocal about is the fight for 15, um, in particular as it pertains to Vice President Kamala Harris and the parliamentarian, all the procedures that are happening right now. Could you just kind of take us to where you are in terms of this specific fight?
2: Sure. Uh, You know, the President of the United States and the Vice President repeatedly and explicitly promised a $15 minimum wage if they uh, win office, and we now have a situation in which that can happen uh, right now. Uh, The COVID relief bill, uh, the House-passed bill, has the $15 minimum wage in it. Uh, There's a so-called reconciliation process, the so-called "Bird Rule, which makes it harder to attach uh, what they call non-germane things, uh, non-related things, into uh, budget bills. But of course, the minimum wage uh, is a budget matter. Uh, The Congressional Budget Office said it has about a $50 billion cost uh, for some of the things that it would increase. So it should be ruled in order. Uh, Things that are smaller budget matters have been ruled in order by the Senate parliamentarian. And in this case, uh, the Senate parliamentarian issued uh, an advisory opinion saying that the uh, minimum wage should be taken, essentially be taken out of the bill. Now, it's very important to understand that the parliamentarian is not a judge. Mm -hmm. Uh, It has no power. It is an advisor to the Senate majority leader about parliamentary procedure. Uh, The Senate Democrats and Vice President Kamala Harris as the presiding officer of the Senate uh, can choose to ignore the parliamentarians advice. That's happened in the past. So what could happen is is that the vice president could say, "I am not going to follow this advice. I disagree with this advice. I am the elected official. The reason I am uh, the presiding officer, they make that, they, that the presiding officer is the vice president, is so that the elected official, not some unelected official, can make this determination. And I determine that this is wrong, and the minimum wage can move forward." Uh, Unfortunately, the White House has said that uh, so far, uh, to date, that she will do the opposite of that, that she would rule with Mitch McConnell uh, in support of the uh, parliamentary advice uh, to essentially rule the $15 minimum wage uh, out of the bill, essentially killing it uh, for uh, at least for the time being. Mm -hmm. Uh, She doesn't have to do that. Uh, I believe she shouldn't do that. I don't think there's any reason to do that. We had an election. She made a promise. This is a perfect way to deliver on that promise.
0: And and if we think about it, just in terms of the politics, right? You know, this is good politics for her to do this, right? So let's let's say she actually stepped out there and used her authority, constitutional authority, and and ruled against the parliamentarian, and they proceeded with the vote, notwithstanding Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin those threats. But just talk about how it would play out in terms of procedures as well as politically.
2: Well, I you know. Would Manchin and Cinema vote against the minimum wage if uh, Kamala Harris advanced it to essentially a floor vote? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, the president of the United States is the most powerful office in the world. The president of the United States uh, has lots of tools at his disposal to try to influence those votes. The president of the United States could pressure those senators to get in line and vote for that minimum wage package. What could also happen in the House to add urgency to this is that you could have a number of House members, uh, all you need is about six to 10 House members, to say, We're not voting for a COVID relief bill uh, that includes no minimum wage increase. And then basically say, You know, if Joe Manchin is going to threatened to take down this bill uh, for various reasons. We're gonna threaten to take down this bill for various reasons. And the White House has to stop kowtowing to Joe Manchin and C- C- Kristin Sinema. Uh, the White House has to also listen to us. My view is if that played out, you could see some sort of compromise. Uh, you could see some sort of at least move towards a $15 minimum wage. But right now, uh, those demands are not being made by the House Democrats. Uh, Joe Biden is only, uh, appears only to be negotiating uh, with Joe Manchin. There was a report out there that Manchin uh, has not been pressured to support uh, a $15 minimum wage by the White House. So what you have is a situation in which Joe Biden is essentially not really lifting a finger uh, to advance the cause of the $15 minimum wage that he promised promised
0: and and this is the the troubling part about it, because in a lot of ways, it it gives a lot of fuel to the fire for um, individuals or groups that argued against supporting Joe Biden um, from the left. And here we are, Joe Biden actually demonstrating the lack, at a minimum, the lack of willingness to fight on behalf of working people, whereas we saw all of the campaigns, all of the campaign speeches, all of the tweets, we can have the record of them supporting $15 an hour. So why if why if there's, there's a bigger political price to pay to not do this than there is to do this? What do you think is the calculus going on in the mind of Joe Biden and his supporters? I think it's a good question,
2: and I don't really know the answer. I mean, I can speculate that uh, that there's this idea that you have to preserve so-called Senate norms. Uh, that ignoring a, a non-binding advisory opinion from a from a parliamentary advisor is somehow uh, outrageous and hurts the institution. I mean, all these arguments exist in Washington in a bubble where really sociopathic arguments uh, are considered normal. I mean, it is. Mm-hmm. I would. I believe it's a relatively sociopathic argument to say that we have to respect the non-binding opinion of a parliament a uh, parliamentary advisor, even if that means denying a a raise of the minimum wage to millions and millions of workers who are struggling to get by. In the the real world, in the normal world, that's sociopathic. Uh, In Washington, that passes for a normal way to think. Uh, And that's part of the problem. And so it could be that it could be that Joe Biden doesn't really want to do a $15 minimum wage, that he wanted a campaign on it, but wasn't really willing uh, to to do the work to actually make it get done and didn't really want to make it get done. I mean, we have seen Joe Biden say things and then not deliver on them uh, and and lie about them over and over and over again. I, I mean, I don't enjoy flagging that, I don't enjoy spotlighting that, but that's the truth. Right. Uh, and so th- these questions are real, but but we can speculate about what the reason is, but the, the bottom line is that we should be asking the question of power. What about the power dynamic is allowing uh, for uh, Joe Manchin to be controlling the discourse here? What power isn't being used by progressives uh, to make uh, to, to get the progressive agenda at the table? And again, I would go back to in a narrow House, uh, you can have six to 10 House Democrats threaten to take down this bill, which would force the progressive agenda to the negotiating table, which would force the White House to take those demands seriously. You could have two or three progressive senators in the Senate mm-hmm. say that they're not going to vote for a, a, a COVID relief bill. that doesn't include the minimum wage, but they're not willing to do it. Now, I will say one last Last thing, the obvious reason as to why they're um, uh, in in some cases not ready to do that is because of the argument that, well, the bill still has some good things in it, and we're not willing to take down a whole bill that has good things in it just for one thing. Manchin is willing to take down a whole bill, uh, I guess the argument is, because he doesn't care about the good things in the bill. Mm. And that may be true, but the bottom line is, the power equation here is, if you don't play hardball at the level that the other side is playing hardball, then you get
0: rolled. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. And so this is the frustrating part about it is because we've seen the parliamentarian being ignored plenty of times before. Right. And that's usually to the service of the wealthy, the top one percent. But in this case, it seems like it's an insurmountable hurdle. Would you compare just like previous iterations of when uh, these rules were ignored versus now where we can't ignore them for the sake of the people?
2: Sure, look, it's not a regular occurrence that the the parliamentarian is ignored. It has happened in the past. And again, I go back to why would the rules of the Senate empower the vice president to make the decision and not an unelected parliamentarian, if not for the idea that an elected official, somebody who is uh, a, a representative of the people or is supposed to be representative of the people, that the reason w- that the Senate rules vest that person with the decision is because we still live in a republic. It is still supposed to be a democracy. The idea of blaming a parliamentarian who can be ignored or fired uh, blaming that person for the decisions uh, that elected officials are making is ridiculous. And I would remind you that when the, Re- when the Republicans faced this back in 2001, when they faced a parliamentarian that- whose advice they didn't like, they simply replaced that parliamentarian. That mm-hmm. could be done right now. It's not being done. And so the people who are refusing to do that are making clear that they are not willing to fight for a $15 minimum wage.
0: Mm. And I think you kind of alluded to it, but I want to put a finer point on it uh, before we run out of time here. It's almost as though they value the institutions and the norms of the Senate more so than the fight necessary for the people. Could you speak to that with a few seconds? Yeah, I think
2: that I think that's a good way to put it. Sure. I think it's a good way to put it, that, that they want to fight for uh, norms and an institution which has screwed over working people uh, more than they want to actually fight for working people. Uh, mm-hmm. And again, we, when we talk about norms, when we talk about about rules, no one's talking about ripping up the rules, no one's talking about doing anything uh, that violates the law. Literally in the Senate rules, it says that the vice president can do that. And so ask yourself, why would the rules say that the vice president can do that, uh, why would the rules allow for that? Why would they explicitly allow for that if not to make sure that the vice president can represent the people? In other words, it's in the rules to make sure that the will of the people can be expressed through its Mm. representatives, and that something like the minimum wage, if a parliamentarian gives advice that is wrong or wrongheaded, that it gives the elected official the power to make sure that the right thing is done. If that power is not used, it is a statement that these people are not willing to actually fight to deliver on the promises that they made to millions of people.
0: Wow. David Sorota, journalist and former speechwriter for Bernie Sanders, thanks so much for joining us.
2: Thank you. Thanks for having me. Pleasure's ours.